so women got those qualifications over the last 20, 30 years, right? They got their MBAs, they got their PhDs, they spent this much time climbing the corporate ladder. But now that they reached that point, women in general, the job description itself shifted. This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications. Hey, folks, welcome back, and thanks for tuning in this week. You know, many people have asked me which episode is my favorite, and I got to say, that's a hard question. It's kind of like asking a parent which kid is their favorite. So I don't want to play favorites, but I got to tell you, this conversation is one I am particularly excited about. Anne Helen Peterson is a senior culture writer for BuzzFeed News, and she's been living here in Missoula for the last two years. Anne came to journalism through the bumpy road of academia, and that gives her writing a unique sensibility. She has her finger on the pulse of modern culture, yet she can write about complicated topics with great clarity and rigorously constructed arguments. We cover a ton of ground in this conversation, but to me, there are three key takeaways I'd like you to consider. First, Anne's perspective on academia in general and what's happening here at the University of Montana is interesting and quite likely relevant to many of you listeners. Number two, her work on millennial burnout is powerful and will make you think differently about both millennials and burnout. And three, Anne Griff grapples with gender equity in a compelling way, and we talk about some of the systematic barriers women face that you might not have previously considered. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope that you do too, and I'm excited to bring it to you right now. Okay, so we're here today with Anne Helen Peterson. Anne, thanks for coming on the podcast. I am so happy to be here. So... As I was saying before we, we started recording, I am super excited to talk to you, but also really nervous because you, you, your writing, um, it's super interesting because it pulls together a lot of ideas that have been floating around in my, my head and ideas we've tried to interrogate on this podcast, but they're ideas that I don't feel particularly um, educated, articulate, or informed on, so hopefully we can talk about some of those and I can try to uh, not sound like too much of an idiot. It really depends on the subject. A lot of the things I write about, I'm not an expert in. <laughs> so we'll see. Yeah. So you're, uh, let's just do some bio stuff. You're a reporter for BuzzFeed yeah. News. I first came ac- up across your, your piece on burnout, but I guess I didn't pick up that you live here in mm-hmm. Missoula until um, recently hearing you on the Ezra Klein show a couple weeks back. Mm-hmm. And so reached out and, and here you are. It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I... Moved here, moved back to the Mountain West very purposefully a couple years ago. I came out to Montana to cover the special election for BuzzFeed News. This was like, I I do not have any training as a journalist yeah. or as a political reporter. <laughs> but uh, leading up to Trump's election, there were, uh, I found that there were a lot of journalists, both in my newsroom and in other newsrooms, that were kind of like, what do we do with these Trump rallies? Like, who are these people? Right. And I'm like, you know, I grew up in northern Idaho. I grew up in Lewiston, for those of you who are familiar with the area. And not Lewistown, Lewiston, I know. Right. And uh, I was like, I, you know, grew up with these people. I went to church with these people. Sure. Like, they're not even these people. They're just people. Right. Um, and so I started reporting a lot from 
different rallies, but also just talking to people about politics. And that is my route into political reporting is like as a cultural reporter, I'm always more interested in talking to people in the crowd than to the actual candidate, which I think is kind of interesting in terms of like um, a way to think about it. And so I came out here to report on the special election and my strategy instead of necessarily meeting with the candidates. And this is kind of, you know, this is an election that will go down in Montana's history books because mm-hmm. of what happened oh, yeah. the day the before closing. the election. Yeah. Uh, but I had such an amazing time just talking to people in Montana. So I started in Billings and then went up to Malta, okay. down to High Line, like through um, Link or through Benton City and down in Helena and Great Falls, one of my favorite Montana towns, uh, and Anaconda and Butte, of course, and over to Missoula and then back through boats, like just all over the place. And it was so wonderful and also easy because usually when I am reporting, I kind of feel like I'm going to barf all the time. Like I'm an okay. extrovert, introvert, introvert, extrovert. I, I can become an extrovert if I need to. You can turn it on when you have to. It's not my natural mode. Um, But it was easy here. And I was trying to figure out why. Versus New York where you were based before and the mothership. Yeah. Yeah. Anywhere else that I had done reporting. Okay. And part of it was the ease. I still had my Idaho driver's license. This is even, this is like... 15 years after. Okay, yeah, there's a lot of steps Well, I mean, I was a a graduate student and all these sorts of things, so you don't have to get rid of your license. Like, I'm still an Idaho resident, technically. Sure. Uh, But that, it it worked as a passport in some ways. Okay. And then also just saying you're from Idaho. Yeah, Especially North Idaho. A little street credit. It gives you some street... This was just easy to talk to people. Like, these are my people. Um, And so, the combination of just, like feeling very alive and happy doing this reporting and then the ease of it too, I convinced my boss uh, and my partner to let us move out here and report on the Mountain West from the Mountain West. What a novel concept. Yeah, and of all the places in the Mountain West in Montana, why Missoula? I mean, most Missoulians will tell you why. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> one of my I favorite my things, One of my favorite things in Montana is just how much crap all the towns talk about each other. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> like, more yeah. than any other place that I've ever lived, there's just so much competition. And even when I, because since I'm not um, from Montana originally, I don't have as much stake, you know, in the game. Yeah. So when I say, say things like Great Falls is cool or, uh, like, I actually kind of like Billings, people are like, how dare you? Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I think Missoula, I really wanted a college town. You know, I have a, a PhD in academic background, mm-hmm. so there's something that uh, I like being in that environment. Also, just the access to, like, a large library sure. and that sort of thing. Needed to be in a town that was big enough to have, like, a lot of flight options because I still travel a lot for my job. And mm-hmm. my partner, who's a journalist as well, he does too. Okay. And then it's really only four hours to my hometown in Lewiston, so. Yeah, just hop, skip, and a jump. Yeah. So let's go back a little bit. So you have a bit of an academic background, PhD, UT, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, UT Austin in uh, media studies. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. So what was, talk about the transition from that sort of career path to, to journalism. Yeah, you know, I always say that people are like, oh, how did you leave academia? And I'm like, well, academia broke up with me. Yeah, we can talk uh, about <laughs> that because there's a lot going on in this town as we can interrogate yeah. too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's something that I've watched so closely. Mm-hmm. Um, I was really, really lucky. I 
was able to go back to the place where I went to undergrad to teach after I got my PhD. So I went to Whitman College in Walla Walla. Okay. Um, and and actually, one of my best friends here in Missoula is someone who went to Whitman. Okay. And we like, and she lived in New York too. And we both moved back, and are you know a year apart, and both went to Whitman. But and she grew up here. But uh, I thought that I had won the lottery in getting this job. It was a, it was a visiting job, which for those of you not familiar with yeah. academia, means that it was. Um, uh, a sort of a temporary job, but this particular visiting, it was in a position that was created with the idea that like, oh, and then we're going to make it into a permanent job. Oh, yeah, the bait and switch. Right. And and they, I would have been the inside hire because I had been there for two mm-hmm. years and loved it, grew the, our big, like our media studies department. Um, you don't often get people who are crazy about living in Walla Walla. <laughs> But right. I was. Yeah. I love it. I love it there. Uh, it's actually like the landscape is a lot like Great Falls and the, mm-hmm. the Golden Triangle up there and lots of wheat and just beautiful. Um, and they just they decided to go in a different direction with a global studies initiative. And that's how it happened. The person who was hired is great. But it broke my heart. Like, yeah. I mean, it was really, really sad. I love teaching. And but at the same time, I had been uh building a life raft for myself i didn't really realize it exactly but i had been writing online okay your blog and and so forth i started with a blog when i was in grad school called celebrity gossip gossip academic style which is just a free wordpress blog this was in the late 2000s when academic blogs were cool yeah uh and a lot of that blogging energy has since transferred to twitter but uh, i found it really hmm, therapeutic maybe is the word to to write in a non-academic voice. Yeah. I mean, and I've read a bit of your, your current blog, and it seems like you're also sort of working out ideas in, in real yeah. time and in a really genuine way. So. Yeah. So it's it's a, technically a newsletter, but yeah. it, it posts like a blog because newsletters are just blogs that get delivered sure. to your inbox. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it, it is a return to that in a lot of ways. So in addition to that WordPress blog, I also started writing for some small websites, um, places that after the economic downturn, there were just a ton of sites that like couldn't hire any writers, couldn't pay right. anyone. But you know who's willing to work for free? Yeah. The academics. There you go. <laughs> so I was just so honored that they would publish stuff I was writing about um, early Hollywood stars and scandals about them and how they were processed within the popular imagination. Okay. And it just, it was really invigorating to write for larger audiences and to get that feedback. And so gradually that turned into people paying me small amounts of money that I really thought was the most amazing thing in the world. Yeah. $100? Sure. $400? Are you kidding me? For something you created. Yeah. 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 And, uh, which, I mean, that in and of itself is sort of, I don't know if unfortunate is the right word, but like this overwhelming feeling of gratitude and accomplishment for, a wage per hour, <laughs> per minute, per second, per year. That's pretty paltry. Right, right. So <laughs> there was some interesting, you know, things going on in my head yeah. that were making me feel very grateful for that. Right. And then the success of those pieces led to someone, this was in 2014, someone from BuzzFeed said, well, will you write something for us? Okay. Um, you know, and connecting, kind of my specialty was taking these these lessons of, of older Hollywood stars and what happened with their images and, yeah. and kind of comparing them with what was happening in the contemporary moment. And in 2014, it was Jennifer Lawrence 
all the time. Mm-hmm. And so this piece that I wrote was called Jennifer Lawrence and the History of Cool Girls went super viral. It was like one of the first times that a long form piece had gone viral for yeah. BuzzFeed. And they told me at the time, like, oh, well, you pretty much just wrote your job description. Right. And it's just, t- uh, remind me on the timing of, you know, when BuzzFeed kind of, I don't want to say pivoted. But right. Yeah. I mean, it sort of reinvented itself in terms yeah. of serious journalism. They founded the news arm, I would want to say like six months before I came. So they, okay. BuzzFeed News is kind of, more serious. <laughs> yeah, some degree. I mean, Michael brought in Michael Hastings yep. during that whole thing. And yep. yeah, I mean, some big blockbuster stories. Yeah. yeah. And they told me that, you know, whatever you want to do with, like, whatever your thing is, let's yeah. try it. Just they do were, it. They were also kind of throwing stuff at the wall at that yeah, point, yeah. which was this really innovative expansion point in BuzzFeed's history. They're saying, like, well, let's try quizzes. Oh, well, that works, sure. right? Like some people forget that BuzzFeed there wasn't quizzes for a long time. There were like there were just lists and right. then there were quizzes and then there was video and then there was stuff like Tasty in the Facebook video that is now associated with BuzzFeed. And then the news arm it's kind of a loss later, right? Like it's a prestige part of it. Um Brings in traffic, but yeah. it's not necessarily. That's like, not a bad place to be. No, not yeah. at all. If you get the resources to do great totally. work, and well, that's when when everyone makes fun of the lists, I'm like, I am very happy to allow those lists to yeah. pay for like in depth, extensive reporting. Sure. Um, and so I gave my last final at Whitman, and then okay. got on a plane the next day and moved to New York. Wow! To start at BuzzFeed. Yeah, and then to Montana, and yeah. You know, as you're, as you're talking about this, particularly your, your academic experience, you know, I landed here in 2012. Mm-hmm. It's been a tough seven years for the university. Yep. I don't know how familiar you were with the struggles going on here before you came back to, to, to the West. Yeah. But you've been living in it for a couple of years now. And as I'm reading your work, just thinking, part of me is thinking, okay, you know, I am tremendously fortunate to have you know, gotten through a PhD program with very little debt mm-hmm. and then to have found a job on the first try and then to have made it sort of through the tenure hurdle and like all these things that, um, you know, you need a lot of luck to pull off. And then I think of it from the other side, like, okay, I'm in this town and all we do is we've been under the siege of enrollment and budget stress and scarcity and, you know, it's easy to think like this is the worst job in the world, and and it is the worst job in the world, except for all the other jobs I sometimes <laughs> think about. You know, so I'm yeah, like, yeah. I'm sort of experiencing your work of, of these two minds and thinking, is this kind of part of this burnout paralysis or that 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 people are experiencing? I mean, if it's of a sort, a little bit, I think. Well, it's this question of like, are there any good jobs under capitalism? Right. Okay. There's a big question. Yeah. Right. Like is, you know, so I think about this. I was actually in a fight with someone who's still an academic the other day. Fight is a a harsh word for it. We were in a long email chain discussion about it. And and he was like, you know, yeah, there are parts of my job that I don't love and that feel exploitative. But there are parts of every job that people don't love and and feel are exploitative. And, you know, I don't know if that's necessarily the case. I think sometimes people, you know, like this idea that you have to be passionate about what you do, I think that's a very contemporary phenomenon and something that millennials have certainly internalized in a way that has not been true in the past or an expectation of the past. 
But I do think that there, you know, I think unions were part of this push to say, like, you know, and, like, obviously in Montana, we have this very rich union history. So I don't mm-hmm. think that, like, a miner in Butte would say, I need to be passionate about mining. Right. But they can say, here are the protections that I expect on this job. And, and as you talk about that, too, I mean, there's definitely, you know, you don't, you're not passionate about mining, but you're passionate, I would presume, about the identity of yeah. being a miner. Right. And so, yeah, there's this theme in your work about work as identity as well. And, yep. and as I think about that, that's not necessarily something new. Yeah, no. And also, you know, pride in that identity and and being able to say, you can't you can't denigrate what I do. My, what I do is important. Okay. And this is the thing that I think academia really struggles with is that we are explicitly denigrated in terms of especially people in the humanities – yeah, in terms that, of the value of your field. Yes, the value of your field, what you were doing, you know, like there, especially when, you know, I was in media studies and specifically celebrity studies. So there was this idea that somehow sure. what I was doing was fluff and meaningless and, and no one should ever major in unserious. that, right? Yeah. When really, like, you know, part of taking liberal arts classes is learning how to be a person in the world. Mm-hmm. But then there's the implicit devaluation of what you do by defunding on the part of legislators or, um, you know, if you're at a private institution, just, you know, not being valued as an instructor or as a as a, a person who's working as part of this process. And there's also the rhetoric around the <laughs> the student-teacher relationship, yep. right, in that, it, like, you are just a provider, that you are not someone with sure. uh, who has gone to school for a really long time and is an expert in their field. No, you are providing a service the same way that like a Starbucks barista is and a student can expect and ask for anything. Yeah, the student is customer yeah, model. Yeah, the student is, is customer is, model. Is, is fraud. However, I do feel like yeah, and within that the expectation that I am a provider in terms of providing content is also misguided. Right. Like we as right. faculty totally have to reinvent ourselves. Like if anybody thinks our job is to deliver content. Yeah. Like, Take out that thing in your pocket that right. has every piece of information ever and recorded. And that, like, a student can just press a button yeah. and get what they need from us. Or whether... fact-check you in class in real time, <laughs> right. which happens. Yes. And it's great. I mean, I've learned to embrace that because mm-hmm. otherwise you're just – you look like a fool. Yeah. Well, and I'm not saying – I don't think that there should be this, like – reified hierarchy of, like, the professor knows everything. Right. Right. It's much more of this – this idea that somehow the student knows everything or that they have, you know, the student is always right. And I think that in this much more uh, business model, you get into that situation a lot. Yeah. So, I mean, how do you, this is a big question, but like, how do you view what's happening here at the University of Montana from your vantage point? Yeah. I mean, they're looking at enrollment and Mm -hmm. budgets and, disciplines that, that are, have been part of your academic uh, experience that are under siege here? Mm-hmm. Well, so there's two parts, I think. I shouldn't think. say under siege, that are under stress. Yes. Siege is a, a little bit editorial. <laughs> I think there's two parts. I think from a you know a celebrity studies uh, or image management perspective, I think that the university did a really bad job of, of um, responding to everything that happened over okay. the course with sexual assault on campus. I think that there are certain hires that suggest that some of the things that happened on campus were not necessarily taken seriously. Sure. Um, and it's not even just the hires, but also the subsequent rhetoric from some of those people. Um, 
And so that, like, if you're looking at, if you're a parent in Montana and you're looking at two schools, and maybe you still are really into the football thing, right? And I'm not trying to denigrate the pleasure people take from from college sports, but I think that, like, if you're thinking, you know, where is my daughter maybe going to be safest? Like, yeah. I was on a plane into Montana the other day, and there was a student who was coming in, and she met this other girl who was coming as a prospy to come look here. And the student was like, do not drink anything that anyone wow. puts in your hand, right? And, like, that's just good advice to a woman on a college campus. Sure. But it's also particular advice to a woman coming to this college campus. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I think people can argue about how endemic this is to, to other colleges, and it certainly is. But the one thing about how you recover from a scandal is that you prove that you're going to do things differently. And I don't, I just don't think that that is something that the school has ever sufficiently addressed. And it's hard. Like, I'm not saying it's easy. Yeah, but. it's it's hard to know, like, the right way mm-hmm. to do it. I mean, I agree with a lot of what you're saying in the sense that, um, particularly when I first started here, it, you know, I'd, I'd ask around, like, hey, what's all this DOJ stuff? And, right. And, and And as a result, like, people debate, you know, the, the, the reporting in the Crack Hour book, right? Right. But my experience reading that was my sort of most in-depth exposure to information on the, on right. the issue here. Right, right. You know, I couldn't get it from colleagues. I couldn't get it from oh, – I, I had good conversations with some students. I had right. students on the football team. I had students that had been on the other side of that. Mm-hmm. And students would talk about it. And that's one thing I actually thought was missing in the whole thing. Right. We didn't hear much from the students during that time. Yeah. Still don't. Yep. And then the other thing is I think that like we look, you know, the the political environment in Montana is so complex and we, the legislature is trying to kind (laughs) of, you know, work with this libertarian ideal of like, how do we get the most out of the least taxes? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And so a lot of times. Yeah. And and only meeting every other year to talk about that. Right, right, right. And a real, uh, an authentically citizen oriented legislature, right? Like, um, and I think that, you know, when I talk about student debt and the student debt crisis, one thing that people try to remind me a lot of and that I have internalized more and more is that, you know, yes, this is a problem with stuff happening on school, on, on campuses, but it's also a real problem with the, like, 30-year defunding of public institutions yeah. on the state level. Mm-hmm. And so what can University of Montana do with what they have. Yeah. Like, this is the question. There's not a lot of degrees of freedom. Yeah. No. Gosh. And as I'm thinking about that, I'm thinking about your 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 recent piece on Turning Point and the mm-hmm. rally over at MSU. Yeah. And, you know, thinking about, like, geographic sorting on the basis of political affiliation is, is not a new thing. But thinking about it through the lens of university enrollment and yeah. university branding and and all of that. So mm-hmm. when was when was that event? You, do you I assume you, you was, attended the rally, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was at MSU, the end of April. Okay. Yeah. And so for, for listeners that don't know, Turning Point USA is a, 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 a youth oriented or a younger oriented group that mm-hmm. uh, tries to mobilize conservatives and Republicans on college campuses. Is that an accurate description? College campuses and high school campuses. And high schools. Okay. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, and their leader, Charlie Kirk, is this very charismatic young guy. He's a skilled debater. I mean, part of the piece is about what what debate means in his hands, which is really just like owning people online. Yeah. And then taping encounters with them and, and putting that as like evidence of persecution. And uh, But he showed up at MSU with a really curious thing talking with students there is they're like you know the name of the tour is called Campus Clash USA yeah yeah yeah. very sort of uh, salacious yes and you know I had been on campus earlier this year for um, I was reporting for a profile on Kathleen Williams and her okay. uh, congressional run and I talked to a bunch of students there then and then when I was also there to report on this rally there's not a campus clash there you know, there's obviously things that people disagree about, but actually the college Republicans and the college Democrats have done events together. Like there isn't this okay. massive animosity that I think lives in the public imagination on the college campus. And so had there been much uh, hype about this and consternation about this event ahead of time? Like- no, they actually chose not to – so the other groups that might have maybe – been who were concerned or against yeah. the rally decided that that sort of that sort of reaction is exactly what they crave right and so they didn't want to give them that reaction Smart. which actually reminded me of what happened when president trump came here to missoula in terms of what the opposition or protest or you know, resistance groups decided you know we don't want to be a presence at the rally we're going to have a, we're going to climb up the mountain and we're gonna make the L turn it into liar. Yeah. <laughs> and um, impeach. Yeah, uh, yeah. But then also, like, their protest was away from the rally. Right? Right. Like, they don't want to give that confrontation that feeds into the perception of conservative persecution. Okay. This episode of A New Angle is brought to you by The Pintler Group, a Missoula based marketing agency founded by two University of Montana graduates. These guys are experts in digital marketing, content writing, social media, marketing strategy, and a whole lot more. They've worked with a wide variety of clients, from major universities to a quilting subscription box company. Interesting. So if you want to learn more about your web traffic, driving more online sales, or promoting the great things happening at your organization, you got to talk to the Pintler Group. Check them out at www.pintlergroup.com. Hey, this is Mark Moss from Tell Us Something, and you're listening to A New Angle. But then I also think, you know, as much as uh, there, most of the people that I talked to at the TPUSA rally were not native Montanans. Interesting. Whether those were um, older people who had heard about the event and knew Charlie Kirk from he makes appearances on Fox News, um, and then a lot of the college students were actually out of state as well. Okay. Um, which is interesting, right? Like you get. A lot of them are Californians, Mm -hmm. which is reflective of the general move of (laughs) influx of of people coming into Montana. Sure, and Bozeman in particular, and then the enrollment patterns at at Montana State University have been largely driven by out-of-state enrollment, too. I mean, and that's another thing that we didn't even talk about is how, in general, state schools are, you know, part of the way that they make money is these out-of-state tuition costs, right? Yeah. I mean, I was a graduate student at the University of Washington, and there was this inflection moment where state funding had been cut and cut Mm -hmm. and cut, and it actually became easier to be admitted as an out-of-state student academically than as an in-state student. I think, and I almost wonder if that was an explicit 
strategy by the administration and admissions in order to call public attention to just how ridiculous this situation had become. Well, I don't even know if it was a public relations decision so much as just a fiscal one, right? Yeah, you got to make, I mean, make ends meet. Why do you think the international population at a lot of these state schools is so right, high? Right, But also forecasted to decline. And what, I saw this stat. I mean, fact check me on this. But, like, there's a stat about how international – Enrollment is predicted to just fall off a cliff mm-hmm. and that like 20% of universities are predicted to close within the next 20 years in part because of that. Yeah, I haven't seen that attributed to international enrollment, but I've, I've heard the predictions about universities closing. Yeah. I mean, and Which so is, part of that is millennials just not enrolling at the, the rate as just being a smaller demographic. Is that right? Yeah, I probably over. Yeah, I mean, there's probably population factors and right. then there's overinvestment in universities mm-hmm. and, and for-profit education and, right. and all that stuff. Right. Um, you know, and there's been this, all these threats of different delivery mechanisms, MOOCs and other online platforms mm-hmm. and so forth. And MOOCs, man, I haven't heard that, heard that word in a long time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we talk about it a lot here. <laughs> yeah. Or we should talk about it more. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I mean, so as we're talking about this, it makes me think back to your work on burnout and work as identity. And, you know, I was re- rereading your piece on millennial burnout this mm-hmm. morning, feeling like all the, you know, sort of I'm feeling it as I'm reading it, which sounds like <laughs> you sort of experienced the same thing reporting it. Well, so you just finished the semester, right? Correct. It was very timely. Right? I mean, but did you feel a letdown? Like, did you feel a release of like the stressors in your life with the end of the semester? A little bit. Yeah, and the weather we're having in helps. Western Montana today, it's like the first proper day of spring. Mm-hmm. Uh, that absolutely helps. But yes, yeah, so yeah, it is always kind of cathartic for me to click submit on the grades. See, my thing that I would realize is that it should have felt much more cathartic. Hmm. But then I was like, well, I got to do all this other stuff. Well, yeah, there's that, <laughs> like all the stuff that I've been kicking down into this week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this week is like all these little hundred things that I... And bills I didn't pay and all these yep. little things that yep. – what did you call it? Aaron fatigue yes. in your piece? Aaron paralysis. Aaron paralysis. <laughs> and then as I'm sort of thinking all that through, I, you know, I toggle over to whatever New York Times and the headline is about climate change. And it's worse than we thought right. and we're totally screwed and there's right. nothing we can do. First notification on my phone this morning, New York Times, you know, millions of species yeah. are going extinct. Right. Yeah. Including us probably. Yes. yes. Well, I think that – so. That feeling of the never-ending to-do list is part of what I um, came to associate with this feeling of burnout, right? Yeah. So in the piece, I talk a lot about how I refused to acknowledge that I had burnout or did not recognize it as burnout because I thought that burnout was like when you were doing something so intense, like when you're a student and you're, you're studying for finals, right? And yeah. it's just like single-minded. Kind of fatigue, right? Or um, you're a doctor in the emergency room, right? Like you're doing something that is so, so intense and then you crash. Right. And then you recover, right? Mm-hmm. You go um, like after finals, I used to always just like sleep for a week. I'd always get sick. Like that was always the thing. Yeah. Right? Like your immune system lets you get sick, forces you to sleep, you recover, your mom cooks for you, whatever. Um, or that in the more adult iteration, you go on vacation. Mm-hmm. You go to someplace sunny um, or you go into the woods. And what was happening for me is that 
I never reached that full point, right? Or I would take time off. Sure. And it didn't actually it fix didn't, anything, didn't right? Help. It was just like burnout was the base temperature yeah, is yeah. the phrase I use in the piece. And so even something like submitting your grades or filing a giant piece or yep. like I did a ton of midterms coverage and was like following Beto O'Rourke all over Texas, like stay, you know, no sleep. And I thought, okay, so after this is done, I'm going to feel like this huge exhale. Right. Didn't Nothing. happen. And it just was that steadiness. And part of what it was is that like burnout means that you reach that point of exhaustion. And instead of a moment of catharsis and recovery, you just keep going. Mm-hmm. You just keep, and it tur- everything turns flat. Everything turns into that list of to-do. Like it just, you know, all fades to gray in a right, lot of ways. Right. And it's it, like the things that would make you experience joy, the things that would really suck, like even those emotions would be sucked from those experiences as well. And some of the systematic kind of factors that contribute to that, whether it's technology and the way that technology enables us to be online mm-hmm. all the time, it blurs the lines between work and leisure to the point where I think you, you talk about it, we've become really bad at leisure because yeah. it's time away from work or yeah. it's perverse. I actually think people in Missoula are better at it than well, people other yeah, places Yeah, I mean, there's life. a lot of fun stuff to do that <laughs> involves getting out of a place where you your phone works. Right, exactly. And that's the thing. One thing I don't know if people in Montana appreciate as much is that in like in New York, as soon as you get off the subway, everyone's walking off the subway, right? And going yeah. up the stairs. Everyone has their phones out already, oh, right? Man. You're walking up the stairs and you have your Bumping phone out. into each other. Um, and... Or you're at the grocery, the bodega, because yeah. there's not really a grocery store right. you know, in, in New York. You're at the bodega and you're waiting to check out with your overpriced cauliflower. And everyone's just on their phones waiting, right? Anytime when you have that kind of interstices in life, people are on their phones. Yeah. Or they're listening to headphones. Mm-hmm. And here... I feel like a weirdo if I take off my out my phone when I'm at Albertsons. Yeah, like it really is conspicuous to be on your phone in a more public place. Which I mean, I kind of think is a good thing. It's a great thing. Although it occurs <laughs> to me, like it's weird that you know you make judgments about other people's behavior on their phones. It's very, it's almost akin to how we make judgments about people based on their driving. I mean, I think that really the judgments that we're making on other people are oftentimes. We are externalizing the judgments we're making yeah, on ourselves. Yeah, exactly. Right? So, yeah. like, you're trying to kind of, <laughs> without admitting that, like, you are ashamed of your own phone behavior, you map that onto someone else. Right. Um, but I do, like, one thing. Or your own shame about feeling like you're not getting as much done in your life. And yeah. this person's being more productive. Right, right, I right. Am. No, I'm sure. Well, and I'm always that person. I find it really hard to do anything other than work on a plane. Yeah. And so... I'm always jealous of the person on the 1030 flight back to Missoula who is watching the movie. Just chilling out. Here I am on my computer, and I'm sure they're like, wow, look at that workaholic, right? Um, And judging me for whatever reason. Or saying, like, oh, I'm ashamed that I'm not also working. I think most people are not uh, (laughs) ashamed. (laughs) Because this is the one person told me, they're like, you know, people don't move to Missoula to work. And, <laughs> and uh, yeah. what, what they meant was like to work really, really, really right. hard. Yeah, it's not a winning strategy to yeah. move here to work. And I always think about that when like I'm at the gym and like it's like people who pushed off work at 345 or you know what I mean? Like you just yeah. see people who are out and enjoying this incredible place that we live in. And so for me, sometimes people say like, oh, well, did your burnout get better when it, you moved to Montana? Mm-hmm. 
And it didn't because instead I took like the two extra hours yeah, that yeah, I saved I worked all the time. from commuting and I just worked those times. Right, right. <laughs> and part of it was that um, now that I work from home, uh, the, just the boundaries. Yeah, you're up against it even more. Yeah. yeah. And also I just had really bad habits of that already from being an academic, which, you know, academia teaches you to work. All yeah. the time. I mean, I was having a conversation with a good friend this morning. He's an emergency room physician, and his work is super interesting. He's a very flexible schedule. Mm-hmm. It's unpredictable and a little weird. Yeah. But it's very discreet. Yes. You know, when it's on, it's on. Mm-hmm. And when it's off, it's relatively off. Right. Whereas, Unless you're on call. But, like, that's yeah. a different thing. You know you're on call right. or you know you're not on call. Whereas my job, it's tremendously flexible. Mm-hmm. You know, I am in many ways the CEO of myself, which is great. There's a small number of hours when I have to be on. Right. But there's pretty much zero hours where I'm totally off. Right. And I've found that it, like, yeah, you have to be really kind of thoughtful about your time. Mm-hmm. Or else you'll just start spinning out of control. Yeah. There's always more work to do. Oh, yeah. As an academic, there's always, like, there's more time you could put into your class prep. There is more time you could devote to office mm-hmm. hours. There's more time that you could work on publishing or on producing podcasts. Right? Like, there's, oh, yeah, so there's yeah. service. Yeah. Don't, there's don't throw the podcast into the work no, category just, yet. But that's the thing is that it's, an, it's a, a form of invisible service that's not necessarily counted yeah. as, as labor, right? Because you're mm-hmm. like, I like doing the podcast. It's fun. Sure. But it's time. Yeah. Time away from other things. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. So I, I feel like I have to get into this part of the burnout discussion, and that's gender differences and mm, how yeah. you kind of think about that. Some of the writing on your blog has been super compelling on this topic and how this, this notion of burnout is experienced differently um, across genders and some of the systematic reasons why that is and, and why we're having such a, such trouble with it. Mm-hmm. So you're, you you wrote a piece recently kind of in response to New York Times Upshot piece mm-hmm. um, by Claire Kane Miller. And I can't remember the exact headline, but it was something along the lines of women did everything right and still got nothing that they wanted. Right. Um, you know, so we have an economy that has opened more pathways to women, to senior level positions, more training, more education, yet those – those structures are 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 less welcoming to women in many ways because mm-hmm. women seem to be the ones that are opting, taking the 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 brunt of the flexibility needs of a family. Is right. that the right way of yeah, saying? Yeah, yeah, I okay. think that's right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is super interesting to me, yeah. and it, like was it made some things click in my head. So the way that Miller, building on research from from other social scientists, and, yeah, a lot of um, economists and. Yeah. and yeah, well-researched piece. At least I thought so. Yeah, no, and that's the thing. Like, she she specializes in, in gender coverage, but uh, synthesizes a lot of work from yeah. other academics in a way that I think gives credit but also makes it accessible. But what she lays out is that – think of it this way. Like, so the job description that was advertised was like, okay, so women, you got to have all this education. you got to have this experience. This is the job, right? Yeah. You know, the reason there's not women in these jobs is because they don't have that those qualifications. So women got those qualifications right. over the last 20, 30 years, right? They got their MBAs. They got their PhDs. They spent this much time climbing the corporate ladder. 
But now that they reached that point, women in general, the job description itself shifted. Okay. So now the job description says, and the, the, she points to specifically the example of what are called greedy jobs. Mm-hmm. So jobs that now require much, much, much more in terms of flexibility, time, time socializing, kind sure. of like the in, ineffable parts of a job that are really, they, they hinge on not having to go home at a certain time to, you know, relieve the sitter. So specifically things like the law, things like finance, mm-hmm. et cetera. Yeah. So the higher echelons of the law, finance, consulting. Probably most jobs that involve travel as yes, well. Yes, yes. And yeah. like, so the idea now is like the, the one I didn't completely understand until reading this piece was like within the law. So it's not just like, oh, you have this much experience or you were on this law review or you have this degree. You are now required at these top firms to be bringing in business in a way that just was not the case. And so, how do you bring in business? Business you schmooze, extra hustle time, right? Yeah. And like that schmoozing time is contingent upon having really malleable, like socializing, contacting, sure. golfing, LinkedIn messaging yeah, hours, yeah, yeah. Um, and also just that the entire like. The idea of recruiting new business, it often, like men recruit more men, yep. right? Like there yeah. are we these- select the people that look and think like us. Right. Yeah. And I'm thinking of like all these things just point to tremendous rewards to availability yeah. and connectivity and responsivity. Yeah. And it almost becomes a competition. I mean, you, you talk in some of your work about sort of performative work. Well, mm-hmm. in many ways, the performative aspects of work are rewarded in this kind of greedy job context. Yes. Absolutely. Because it's like, oh, I'm, I can have that flexibility to bring in this tangible thing, which is new business. Yeah. And that sort of has, has disadvantaged women. Yeah. Because women are typically the, the, the ones that sort of take on the family. What do you call it? The mental load or the... Yeah. The, the... mental load is actually this idea that this cartoonist, this French cartoonist, she, it's kind of more like a graphic novel type thing yeah. that she did to explain the idea of the mental load, which is, again, something that really made a lot of things click for me, which is if you think of your household... And you might divide up chores or tasks in your household in what you think is a pretty equitable manner. So, like, you know, this person is in charge of pickup on this day. This person does the garbage and this person cleans the bathrooms, that sort of thing. But then there's this second component to labor, which is keeping all of the things in your head yeah, all the time, absolutely. right? Which is like, when are your prescriptions running out? Who has had their their boosters on their immunization? Yeah, like tonight, my kids have to be in three different places. And, mm-hmm. you know, my wife's doing that. That's her job tonight. Right. Um, you know, I, I take care of it other nights. But yeah, the mental load of kind of just keeping that all in your head. Yeah. And that is almost always managed by women. Yeah. And I think there's many reasons why that happens. A lot of it's socialized from very, very young. Some of it's like, well, if, you know, who's going to, like, you watch as your mother controls the mental load. Right. So what does that teach you as a daughter? But also as a son, you don't have any responsibility to to take this on. Gosh, and how do we, I mean, that's one thing I, 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 I really appreciate in, in your your writing is you, you call some of the things we're, we're doing like um, mandatory paternity leave as as kind of half measures. Yeah. Right. They're treating symptoms, not the cause. And like, so how do we kind of rethink our 
or structure. I mean, your writing has sort of motivated me to pull back. I guess it goes back to your question. Are there any good jobs in capital? Like, <laughs> is, is capitalism the problem? Like, well, it, I mean, capitalism or, is in large ways the problem. Yeah. And that's one thing in my piece. You know, I don't like drop the C-bomb a ton because I don't – I think sometimes people are alienated when you explicitly name capitalism as, as part of the problem. Sure, yeah. But, it, you know, it's kind of – it becomes religion quickly yeah. at that stage. Workism. Um, You know, I was just listening, though, to this. I'm sure you've listened to it if you listen to me on the Ezra Klein show, but his interview with David Brooks. Yes, last week. Which is, I am not a big David Brooks fan, but I really liked the interview. I I kind of am now, actually, (laughs) after that interview. Because Brooks talked really persuasively about how, and Brooks is like a conservative guy, but he's talking about how capitalism was held in check in a lot of ways by like this mainline Protestant Calvinist tradition, Right. right? Which mitigates the capitalist impulse. <laughs> sure. Like the, the greed and hubris and all of the, the negative things that I think uh, oftentimes come from late-stage capitalism, from capitalism in its current form. But as our our devotion, our, our um, belief in those tenets of Calvinism and Protestantism have, have gone away, there's just, there's no check on capitalism anymore. Yeah. Yeah, and I would think too that like sort of the rise of politics as tribalism, yeah, contributes there too. One of the things in that interview I found compelling is when when Brooks said, "Yeah, that there was a time in the late seventies, early eighties where taxes should have been lower, and then right, right now maybe taxes should be higher." And, yeah, you know that's kind of blasphemy in in a lot of political totally. conversation. <laughs> taxes are universally good or universally bad, right? And totally. so for for you know somebody like you said, pretty conservative to have that kind of Hey, taxes are a tool to to achieve a variety of ends, mm-hmm. and sometimes it's appropriate to use that tool, and sometimes not, and and it's a matter of degree, and right. it's a level of nuance that our political culture doesn't really allow right now. Right. Well, and he points out too that like because of this loss of cultural groupings, so whether that's the church or uh, you know, they're they're called like weak social ties. So any yeah. sorts of groups like the Elks or the Rotary Club or all sorts of different PEO, uh, there's men and women, all sorts of things. Those things have gradually disintegrated. And so our our primary social groupings are much more tribal because they're based on common ideological belief instead of these are the people who live in my community and we're going to have all, you know, a real disparate sense of community belief. Yeah. And so how do you think about the sort of decline of those sorts of groups couched in kind of the, the patriarchy in a way. Because a lot of those groups are very patriarchal, Yeah, right? but the, some of them are very matriarchal as well, sure. right? Yeah. So, I mean, for, for where something like uh, – what is the one that I'm trying to think of? Like there's a lot of old-fashioned ladies' clubs that are – Like the Women's not... University Club or things like <laughs> no, that? No, they're, they're just the ones that are like much more to do with like femininity and kind of policing okay. societal norms and that sort of thing, which I don't think are very progressive or feminist. Yeah. You, you know, just because you have a group of women in a room does not make it a feminist <laughs> quorum. Uh, but I mean, a, a lot of those groups like the Elks and stuff have, have integrated at least gender wise. Sure. Uh, I yeah I, don't I haven't know. seen many women riding those little miniature motorcycles in parades. The Shriner, so, yeah. the Shriner. <laughs> I think that there are attempts to try to recreate those those sorts of groups. Sure. Um, 
you know, I did a piece a couple years ago on how the Elks Club in Seattle, in Ballard specifically, is really cool now. Mm-hmm. And part of it is that you get $2 gin and tonics on that's pretty cool the cut you know like in seattle like on the water but then part of it too is there's a lot of amazon employees who are feeling like a fair amount of enemy you know like they're lonely yeah they come to this this city which is known as like there's this term the seattle freeze oh yeah I've lived that. And that's about how hard it is to make friends in seattle and so you get there and you're like how am i gonna make friends i guess at work but here's this other thing Right, that you can make friends around, which is a group of people of, from all different walks of life. Like the Elks Club, there's still the people who have been members there for a long time yeah. who are an interesting crowd. <laughs> but then also you have people who ostensibly the Elks, like many of these clubs, like they are a philanthropic organization. But it's a lot of it is just like drinking with other people. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that the, out, around the outdoors here in, in Missoula – there is a lot of There certainly is. I mean, you just look at the number do. of microbrews, breweries mm-hmm. and coffee shops yep. and bike shops and I think there's a circular economy between all those types of, you know, money flows from a bike shop to a coffee shop right. to a bar, to, you know, and keeps us all kind of going. A yeah. Bit. But I do it also it's hard to make friends here. You know, I've been here it 2 is. years yeah. and if you're not affiliated with the university, it is it's not necessarily easy. And I think that part of that is my own fault, that I'm gone a lot mm-hmm. and I'm selfish with my time and I don't have kids, which are oftentimes the the natural way that people make connections. Um, but part of it, too, is it's it is hard as an adult to make friends in a lot of those ways that we used to make friends. Like think about our parents' generation or our grandparents' generation. They made friends with the people that like – People just didn't move as much, right? So you right. had these people around you that were your friends for a long time. Your family was close by. You're friends with them. Your church, your, you know, the PTA, like these different groups. Yeah. You just have much more of that support, which then also in turn makes things easier if someone gets sick, if your kid needs someone to pick them up yep. after school, like all of those other things. Whereas, you know, we're <laughs> basically I'm pointing to to all of the different effects that make it much lonelier and a more difficult experience to live in the world right now. Yeah, and I would think too, like all the factors that sort of take us away from face to face communication are, are swirling in that as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's easier to text than than call than right. to step out. You know, to walk down the hall to talk to a colleague, to walk across the street to ask a neighbor for ketchup or whatever right. it is yeah right although it's still there's like you know because we don't have a lot of the delivery services that we oh, had gosh. when i lived yeah. in new york like yeah. you do you can still knock on the door and people in montana are authentically nice and welcoming and like dogs are an incredible friendship currency nope. <laughs> so like i i do know my neighbors and i know the people who live in my neighborhood and i know their names and i know where they're from and, and in a way that i i never did even with the people who lived in my building in new york um and i want to say too that like you know growing up in in rural north idaho there are things about the internet that are that I wish I would have had like the sort of connections sure. yeah. that I that I would have been able to forge that I didn't have growing up. And so sometimes I have to balance, you know, my antipathy towards all of these technologies with like 
trying to understand, like, if I were a person growing up in rural Montana who felt different in some way, right? And there's so many different ways yep. that you can feel different. Absolutely. What having those things would have done for me. It's odd how it makes your world, it can make your world so much bigger yep. and so much smaller at the same time. Totally. Yeah. Gosh, can, can, I, I want to be respectful of your time. <laughs> yeah. Can I ask you a couple more questions? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I, I got to read you this this piece from your your own words from from your blog that just really struck me when you when you asked the question. Did companies consciously decide that they were going to up the hours requirements necessary to excel at greedy jobs just to make sure that women stay out of power? Of course not. Patriarchy rarely operates in such a conscious fashion which is part of the way it facilitates its erasure and allows people who benefit from it to claim it doesn't exist. I mean, when I read that, it just sort of like cut right through me, this, this piece about allowing people to claim that it doesn't exist. Right. Um, I think that's kind of swirling in, in, all of, in all of your work to me. Y- you grapple with such complicated concepts and pull ideas together Whereas we have a culture that is kind of dependent on duality, right? right? Left right. or right, us or them. Right. Anyway, we had a speaker at graduation this weekend, and, and Lisa Parks, a professor at MIT and a UM oh, yeah. grad, and she just had this really powerful uh, lesson. She said, always think in threes because no issue is, is ever twos. Right. It's just like really kind of simple rule of thumb. That, right. And I'll certainly use that with students, but but I guess – thinking about this sort of way of thinking makes me wonder, how do you kind of make choices about the topics you cover and how do you approach understanding an issue and pulling all this together? Yeah, I think that, well, first of all, I ever since I learned about the concept of ideology, which again is just this big word that I think sometimes gets thrown around without, if you haven't encountered it in a classroom, you, it's, it's harder to understand. But just this, it's like the way that we think about something, but it also is something that is so naturalized that we don't even question that that's why it is the way that it is. Right. Right. And when so many things, like huh. gravity is not an ideology, like gravity is a, is a fact, right? I mean, you can choose to not believe it and you're probably going <laughs> right? to learn your but, lesson. But it is a, like, but there are other things that we treat as facts. Right. That are ideologies. Right. There is that sort of there's truth, objective truth, and I don't know how – there's, a, there's yeah. a typology of that. Right. And I think like for a very long time, and some people really do believe this, that like white people are the best race in the world mm. and are inherently superior. And gradually that was revealed not to be a fact <laughs> but to be an ideology. Sure. It takes time to think about that. Patriarchy, same thing. Mm-hmm. It is the natural order that men should be in charge of women, that women – and not just be in charge of but also should control society in a way that makes women into an underclass. And I think that sometimes um, when – People take the fact that, like, well, women drive and women are doctors right. <laughs> and, and women have choices. Uh, they, that is used to kind of suggest that, like, oh, there is no more patriarchy. Right, right. Obama was president. Right. There racism is no more racism. Doesn't racism. Exist. Yeah. Um, or even, like, one I always talk about in Montana is people are like, well, I can't be racist. There aren't any people of color here. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, well, you talk to a Native person, you know, a Native American about what it's like to be a Native person here in a place where they, like, 
where people don't believe that there's any such thing as racism. Right, right. Or don't think of the language that they're using about Native people or towards Native people as racist language. They're like, I just don't think they should hunt. That's not racist. (laughs) You know, (laughs) or I don't think they should control the bison ridge. Or there's just, there's so many examples. Um, And so I think, though, with my own work, I am always trying to think of how is this thing that we take as fact or as, you know, red or blue state more complicated, which is perfect, again, when it comes to Montana, because we are a deeply purple state. Yeah, in weird ways. That confounds people. Like, I loved how it confounded President Trump. Mm -hmm. He was like, how did you elect this guy? We're talking about a tester. And I'm like, I'll tell you how we elected this guy. It's really complicated and really interesting. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that I hope stays really true about our state is that it it does cling to that nuance. It clings to that that lack of binary distinction. Um, and so that's what I'm going to keep pushing towards is that thing that we is often you know either forgotten or made invisible or people gloss over because Montana is only a million people or whatever. Sure. When really, uh, I think there's a lot about Montana that can. Uh, be taught to people thinking about politics across the United States. I think there's a lot about uh, um, patriarchy that we can think about when we're thinking about the workplace and how division of labor works. Like, there's just always more to the story, and that's where I always try to like push a couple of buttons. And I love it. I mean, your work <laughs> is it's so compelling, and it's it certainly opened up my mind. And uh, if people want to learn more about your writing and find it, where where can they find you? Oh well. I'm kind of annoying on Twitter. I post a lot of pictures about Montana, um, but I'm at Anne Helen. I think our audience would appreciate that. <laughs> I do. I, yeah, I, I am a big Montana booster online, although people are sometimes like, don't tell anyone. Yeah, keep it a secret. Uh, and Or you can just Google my name and newsletter or Substack is the name of the um, place where I do all of my Sunday writing. And that is also where you can find links to you know the writing I've published during the week and that sort of thing. So. Super. And thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for uh, all the contributions you're making. And uh, yeah, we hope to have another conversation sometime. This was amazing. Thank you so much. All right. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Anne as much as I did. I've been thinking about it so much since connecting with her. That's why I love doing this podcast. There is so much to learn through conversation. And this community has no shortage of compelling minds to engage. So check out Anne's work, both at BuzzFeed and through her blog. And speaking of compelling minds, coming up next week, we have another super interesting thinker, Adam Wolf. Adam is the founder of Arable Labs, an ag tech startup. If you don't know what ag tech is, stay tuned, buckle up, and learn all about it next week. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a gift from University of Montana alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. And remember that A New Angle is supported by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors, These guys pretty much sell anything electrical you would ever need, but they also hire a ton of our students. If you want to learn more about jobs at CED, visit cedcareers.com. And before we go, I want to thank some important peeps. Executive producer, Stefan Borsum. Producer, Aidan Morton. And interns, Aspen Runkle and Max Gibson. Huge thanks to VTO, Jeff Ament, and John Wicks for the tunes. And finally, props to Jeff Meese, our master of all things sound. Finally... If you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word. Be sure to use the hashtag anewangle when you do. 
Thanks a lot and see you next time.